today comes from Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the words of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our for fortress. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a good week as we now get well underway to the fall. Let's now bow our heads asking for the Lord's blessing as we hear his word. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, as we now transition into the new season of the fall, we also pray that you will prepare us as you transition us to whatever season that you have sovereignly determined to bring us individually and collectively as a body. Lord, we thank you for all of your goodness and faithfulness, as well as the sorrows and the sufferings that shape and form us into being like your beloved son, Jesus. Father, with the good and the bad, with the happy and the sorrowful, we know that you use all things for your glory. But Lord, we need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded and we need to be refreshed of the good news of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you will do that now and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have you guys heard of this one? Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Beautiful, isn't it? And in case you're wondering, the name of that poetic piece, Invictus, written by the English playwright William Ernest Henley. I first came across it as I was watching the movie of the same name. And as I remember hearing it for the first time, being so moved with such inspiration, with such hope that I felt I was ready to face any sort of resistance, any sort of darkness that would come my way. But then as I reflected more on what this piece was saying, I came to the conclusion that it had a very dangerous message because it assumed a certain idea that the Bible would completely disagree with. And what idea is that? It's the idea that goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that before, Christian? The answer is, of course you have. Why? Because this notion of God helping those who help themselves is one of the most pervasive beliefs that people in our culture today have about God. Yeah. And here's the heart-shattering thing. It is absolutely false. It is so untrue, and yet it is so common amongst people today. In fact, it is so common, the famous Chicago pastor Erwin Lutzer labels it as one of the top ten lies people believe about God. 
Case in point, Jay Leno. Do you guys remember that guy? The former host of The Tonight Show before Jimmy Fallon. He used to do a little segment called Jaywalking where he would ask random strangers on the streets of L.A. questions that you would presume everyone should know. And one evening he went up to a guy and said, Sir, can you just tell me one, just one of the Ten Commandments? And sure enough, the guy goes, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Now, why are we even talking about this? Who cares about the common beliefs people have about God that are untrue? Well, I'll tell you why. These common lies that people have about God happens to be common amongst Christians. Yes, it's true. It turns out fake news is not only a problem for the channel Evening News, it's also a problem for the church. And because I, as your pastor, do not want any of us to fall victim of believing things that are lies and yet thinking they are true, we're beginning a new sermon series today entitled Lies Christians Believe. And today we're going to tackle this very pervasive lie that people think is true about God, and that is God helps those who help themselves. Absolutely not. And to show you why, we're going to take a look at one famous uh, passage in the Psalms, Psalm 46. And as we do, we're going to see three things from today's passage. Number one, we're going to talk about the legitimate reason we don't want help from God. Number two, we're going to talk about the illegitimate reason we don't want help from God. And finally, we're going to end it with the only way we will accept help from God. The legitimate reason we don't want help from God. The illegitimate reason we don't want help from God. And finally, the only way we will accept help from God. Let's begin with the first point. The legitimate reason we don't want help from God. Now, as I said ago, a moment ago, excuse me, many Christians today truly believe that this idea that God helps those who help themselves is actually true. What's even more astounding is that they'll even say the Bible teaches this. Uh, a few years ago, Barna, the research study group, came to find that seven out of ten people who identify as Bible-believing, born-again Christians say, yes, the Scripture teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Now, you can't help but to wonder, how in the world is this possible? How is it possible for people who study the Bible, go to church, listen to sermons, are able to believe something that is so untrue? Well, let me ask you, why do people tend to believe things that are untrue? Isn't it because there's always a morsel of truth embedded in such lies? You see, the reason why so many people swallow lies all the time is because they take the bait of the morsel of truth that is hooked to that lie, and we see that happening here. You see, even though overall the idea of God helping those who help themselves is atrociously wrong, there's still nevertheless a morsel of truth in that lie to where if you just want to focus on that, you could argue for a legitimate reason why people don't want help from God. And so it would be good for us to know what that morsel of truth is so that as we rightfully reject this lie, we don't inadvertently deny this particular truth. So here's the question. What is the particular truth to where you could argue a legitimate reason we don't want help from God? Well, let's take a quick scan of our passage. Let's have it up there just right now. And if you do a quick scan, a quick reading, one of the things that you'll notice right away is how often the author references the earth. He repeats it over and over in verse 2, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Five times within a span of 11 verses. That's 45% of the text, folks. And clearly such repetitiveness cannot simply be a coincidence, and surely it's not. Because what the author is trying to do by referencing the earth so often is to be able to reference a theological truth that any ancient Jew would have immediately recognized because as an ancient Jew is reading this text and is confronted by all this numerous reference of the earth, it would have triggered in their memory something they would have learned in synagogue since they were little babies. And what is this theological truth? 
Read Genesis 1.28 for the answer. It says this, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Here is one of the first instances of Scripture referring to the earth, and it's so astounding because what it tells us is that when God created the earth, he created mankind to have dominion, to have authority, to have power and rule. In other words, to have control over the earth. This is known theologically as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, and if you're not familiar, consider this explanation from theologian Cornelius Plantica Jr. He says this, quote, In the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28, God charges humankind to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. According to a widespread interpretation of this mandate, God's good creation includes not only earth and its creatures, but also an array of cultural gifts such as marriage, family, art, language, and commerce, and even government. The same goes for the cultural initiatives we discover in Genesis 4, that is, urban development, tent making, musicianships, and metalworking. All of these unfold the built in potential of God's creation. All reflect the ingenuity of God's human creatures, itself a superb example of likeness to God. End quote. So, according to Dr. Planiga, when God created the earth for us, he didn't create it just so that we can have our basic needs met like food, water, water, and shelter. He also created the world so that we would engage it with the endowments God has given us, intelligence, imagination, ingenuity, so that as we would, we would discover certain joys, certain wonderful blisses of creation that would define our relationship to God. A relationship that is filled with love, a relationship filled with care and tenderness because he is our creator as our heavenly father now if all of this sounds a little bit too abstract too theological let me bring it down to a practical level with a personal illustration you know when my first two kids were born Kara and Judah and they were young around three and one respectively Sarah and I would take them to the playground right next to our apartment and one thing you need to know about me as a father is that I am a bona fide helicopter daddy all right I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm not you know afraid to say I am a helicopter daddy, and one of the ways that was manifested back then, at least, is that when Judah was learning to ride the kiddie slide, I mean the really small slide, I would grip his hand as if he was hanging over a 10-story building, right? And at one point, he just got so annoyed. He's like, I can do it. Let it go. Let me go. And my dear wife, who's across the playground, is seeing this interaction between me and our son. And without any shame, she yells at me in front of all these strange parents that we don't know, let him go. He can do it. Let go of his hands. He is able. Kind of subtext is, you're acting like a fool, <laughs> you know. And as I look around and see all these parents like giving me that now, like, oh, you poor man. I do let go of my son's hand. And sure enough, he can master the slide. He is capable. He is able. And he's having a blast. Now, I think that illustration helps us understand what God intended for the earth to be for mankind. He created the world to be a classroom playground, right? So that as we interact and engage it, not only will we discover the joys of this created world, we would not only know something about our creator and that he loves us, but that we would know something about ourselves. And what is that? He has endowed us with such capability to where we can take responsibility over the things he's called us to be responsible for and to be responsible people. Is there a legitimate reason why we don't need God's help? Sure. If you mean we don't need God's help to take responsibility over the things that God has called us to be responsible for. 
which conversely means there is no excuse when you do not live a responsible life the way God intended you to live. See? But here's the thing. That's not the only reason why we don't want help from God. There's actually another. But unlike this one that I just mentioned, this reason, the second reason, is illegitimate, it's ungodly, it's wrong. And that's where we need to focus today's message on. So let's do that now by going to my next point. The illegitimate reason we don't want help from God. Read again verses 1 to 3. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Here we see a very different picture of the earth than the one painted for us in Genesis 1.28. Because instead of seeing a classroom playground, now we see an earth that's like an apocalyptic war zone. Because the earth is what? It's now coming apart and coming against mankind. Yeah, which means something terrible, something tragic, something traumatic occurred that now resulted in mankind's interaction to the earth to not be harmonious and joyful and blissful, but to be filled with tension and turmoil and trouble to the point where we are now feeling like we're at war with this world that God created for us. And because this is the tumultuous relationship we now find ourselves with the earth, the passage begins the way it does in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In other words, because the world is so tumultuous, so tense-filled, so troublesome towards us, we are in desperate need of God's help. We need his intervention, which asks, which brings up the question, what in the world happened between Genesis 1.28 and Psalm 46 to where this interaction with the world changed the way God originally intended. Why is mankind's interaction with the world so bad? Well, consider what it says in the next set of verses, verses 4 to 7. It says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's a lot of things here, but I just want to focus on two things. Notice how different the earth is being described here in comparison to the earlier verses I just read, verses 1 to 3. Right? Because in the earlier verses, the earth is really dangerous. I mean, it's shaking, it's rolling, causing the mountains to throw big boulders that can crush any of us. But here, the earth is described as like melted wax, soft, harmless. It cannot do damage to us. Or if you look at how it describes the waters in verses 1 to 3, it's like this rushing tsunami that can take out entire cities. But here, the water is described as a very calm lake, right? A placid lake that makes the city of God so safe and sound. What happened? What's going on here? What is the difference between the chaotic, dangerous world of verses 1 to 3 and the calm, serene earth of verses 4 to 7? We find the answer in verse 5. What does it say? God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. Here the psalmist tells us that it is the presence of God. That and only that is the thing that determines whether the earth is a chaotic danger zone, right? a war zone, or a classroom playground. It is only when God is present, where he is amongst us, that the earth operates the way it was intended. You see, even though God created us to have responsibility over the earth, 
He didn't intend for us to have responsibility without him ruling over the earth. Let me say that again. Even though God intended for us to take responsibility over creation, he did not expect us to do it apart from his sovereign rule over creation, where we recognize him as the king, as the sovereign over all creation. So let me bring it back to that illustration of my son. Let's say Judah figures out how to do the slide. He knows how to run across the bridge. He knows how to swing around the poles, and he's mastered this little playground. And then he gets a little overconfident. And he comes up to me and says, you know what, Daddy? I, I'm capable of a lot of stuff, aren't I? Yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to move out, and I'm going to get my own place. I'm going to pay for my own bills, my own groceries. And you and Mom, you guys stay over there at 60 and 64, but I'm going to be on my own. I don't need you around. I don't need your presence. Please don't write, don't text, don't call, don't visit. I am good without you, Dad. So see you later, right? What do you think I'm going to think or maybe even say to my son? You little fool. <laughs> you little fool. And yet that is the same folly that we see in Scripture when Adam and Eve, our first parents, what? They disobeyed God by eating from the very tree God forbid them to eat, and they committed the original sin. Because by committing their sins, they're revealing to us in their mind what they're thinking. I'm not made in the image of God. I am identical to God. And so they commit this sin, communicating to God, Lord, we're quite capable. We're quite responsible for ourselves, so we don't need your supervision. We don't need your sovereignty. We don't need your reign. We don't need your rule over this earth in order for us to fulfill this responsibility. We are quite responsible, capable without it. So you do you, God. And will do us. That is the essential mindset of the fallen mind. But one of the things that Adam and Eve didn't realize is that by banishing themselves away from God's presence by sinning against him, now the earth refuses to be dominated by man, but is now a danger to man. Consider these words from Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, he says this, in the Bible, God declares Adam and Eve that they were cut off from nature. Once a friend under our dominion, the natural world is now hostile to us. Natural disasters, famine, disease, decay, mental and physical disabilities, aging and death itself are the result. Nature is not only in decay, but is no longer under us as before the fall. The point of the curse is that the dust of the earth will only very reluctantly yield to us some of its riches. Only with the greatest effort does man learn to get along with the physical world. And even though we must eke out an existence, the earth itself will eventually win. For to it we will return. We may fight the dirt all our lives, and in the end we will be six feet under it, end quote. The illegitimate reason why we don't need God's help is because it assumes the illegitimate belief that we are not responsible creatures. We are the ruler of creation. That instead of seeing ourselves as image bearers of God who are responsible, we are see ourselves as identical God who reigns over all, you see. And when you have that kind of mindset, then you realize that you are someone who is a fool because you deny the fundamental help, the fundamental assistance, the fundamental dependence that we all have to our true sovereign, our true God. So here's the question. How do we get out of this mindset so that we don't erroneous believe that just because we're responsible, we can overestimate that to think that we're the ruler of the world? And this leads me to my final point. The only way we will accept help from God. Let's read again verses 10 and 11 of our passage. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now that phrase in verse 10 begins with the words, be still. In the original Hebrew, it means relax, let go, right? And it's written in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. God is commanding us to be still. But if you really want to know how he is saying this, it's comparable to when a father says to a child that runs up to him because they're terrified or they're hurt, shh, it's okay. Daddy is here. Everything's going to be okay. I'll take care of you. It is fine. Be still, right? God speaks to us like a loving, tender father who is comforting a child who is scared or hurt. And when you realize that, then it gets a little confusing when you consider the next words that God says. What does he say? Be still. Uh, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, according to Hebrew scholars, that set of phrases are military phrases. This is something that a conquering king would say to their enemies once he's defeated them in battle. So here's a weird juxtaposition. Here are two statements of God back to back where he starts off talking to us like a tender father, wanting to care for us, wanting to assure us. But then in the very next breath, he speaks to us like a conquering king who just defeated us. How do you make sense of that? The only way you make sense of that is the gospel. The gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God conquers his enemies by conquering them with his love. Let me say that again. God conquers his enemies by conquering them with his love. God conquers your sinfulness, your selfishness, your self-absorption, your self-grandizing, your self-worship by conquering it with his love for you. When God came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, that was his main priority, to defeat you by defeating you with his life-giving, merciful love. Consider what it says in John 19, <clears throat> starting in... <clears throat> Verse 1, <clears throat> then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wave a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Here we see that God, Jesus, came into the world so that he could be like all conquering kings, where he would have a crown on his head and a banner praising his role in multiple languages to show that he is the ruler of all. But unlike any other conquering king, he would get his crown, he would get his banner, not by humiliating his enemies and taking out innocent life. No, he would get his crown and banner by having his enemies humiliate him and having his innocent life taken away because that is essentially what he did when he allowed himself to be your substitute savior, forgiving you of all your sins, including your claim of being the ruler, of being the creator. Right? And he took it upon himself when he died on the cross as our substitute savior. And why? So that he would communicate to you that he loves you with an unfathomable, unparalleled love. There is an operating assumption that people go by but yet don't realize this is how they think and move and live. And that is, the only person who gets to be in charge of me 
is the one who loves me most. Whether you realize it or not, every human being operates that way. No one gets to tell me what to do. No one gets to be in charge of me unless that person loves me the most. Right? That's true. Who do we tend to let be in charge of us? Ourselves, right? Because no one loves us the way we love us. Right? But what if you encountered a love that actually surpasses your love for yourself? What if you encountered a love that actually loves you more than you could ever possibly love yourself with? That is what you experience. That is what you taste when you experience God's love for you in Christ, in his life-giving love, his merciful love in the gospel. And when you do, surrendering, submitting to this person becomes something that you are more than willing to do and you're more willing to fight and defend for. One person who captured this, ironically, was someone that most people were surprised to recognize. You remember Napoleon, the French emperor who conquered so much of Europe? He once said this towards the end of his life. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ, he's no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus Christ is the great king because he loves us with a love that is unfathomable. And once you taste that love, it is like a newborn baby starving for the first time, tasting his or her mother's milk. As soon as he tastes it, he immediately recognizes instinctively, I need this. And I need the person who can only give what I need. When you encounter God's love in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit working in you, you will instinctively know, I need this love. And I need the presence of the one who can only give this love to me. I need the presence of God in my life. I need his reign. I need his rule over me. Because when he does, then and only then can I truly live out the life of responsibility I am capable of as his image bearer. Here's my question. Have you tasted his love? Have you encountered it? Have you recognized your need that he is the one person that you could not do without because of the love that you yourself cannot provide for yourself? God helps those who help themselves? Absolutely not. God helps those he reigns and rules over those to those who recognize that they desperately need it because of the merciful, life-giving love that his reign provides. This is my charge to you, Christian. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there that people have about your God. Let it not be this crazy idea. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who recognize that he is the only true God who needs to reign over us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this message, as well as the cultural narratives that we are bombarded by claiming to be from your word, we pray that you will grant us discernment and wisdom, that we would know that even though you created us and endowed us with such marvelous capabilities, that we do not overestimate that into thinking that we are more than just your image bearers. We are not identical to you. You are holy. You are one of a kind. You are only the one true king over everything, including over our own lives. 
God, help us to recognize that so that as we live our lives and as we do marvelous things that we are capable of, that we would also surrender ourselves to you, knowing that it is truly because we are made in the image of the glorious one, the one who truly is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. God, I ask that you would continue to guide us with your word so that we don't get guided by what people claim your word says. And Lord, we just pray for constant discernment so that we would live our lives as true witnesses to a world that needs the truth desperately. We ask that you would hear us now, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not